Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you. Thank you for taking another deep dive into crime with us. As always, please be sure to check out our episode description. There you will find timestamps that go with our episodes so you can skip around as much as you'd like. You can also find the links to our TikTok and Instagram as well as our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. I just wanted to give you guys a quick update. I plan on rebranding my podcast a little bit. It will definitely still be true crime. The format of my episodes will not change, but I am going to start doing video. I think being a podcaster and a podcasting host, it's definitely difficult sometimes to put your face out there and introduce yourself. I definitely have been kind of hiding behind my microphone, I feel. My cover art isn't even my face, but I plan on changing all of that. I plan on going live on my TikTok a little bit more as well and just posting more videos of myself. I want you guys to get to know me and I wanna get to know you guys too. I think you deserve it. If you've been a loyal listener since day one or just listening every week, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Podcasting is not easy at all. It's a lot of work. So seeing you guys come back every week is what makes it all worth it for me. And I feel like it's only right if I rebrand a little bit and just put myself out there more. So I want you guys to be on the lookout for that. I will be doing video soon. Still trying to figure out how to work out the kinks of things. I am not a tech wizard. Honestly, if YouTube did not exist, I would know what the hell I was doing because I've been looking up everything, how to do this, how to do that. So. I've definitely been trying to be patient with myself. I really appreciate you guys being patient with me as I just try to figure out. Just wanted to share that with you guys. Again, thank you so much if you have continued to listen every week. I really appreciate it. I also wanted to let you guys know that I will be dabbling in uploading two episodes a week instead of one. When you're doing a true crime podcast, it can definitely be difficult to post multiple times a week because I do a lot of research and a lot of editing and I do everything by myself. I do the editing, the recording, the re- like everything I do all on my own. So it is very hard to post twice a week. I'm gonna see if I can do it though. And I do wanna be consistent with it. There may be some weeks where I only do one episode because I just need some time, but I definitely do wanna start uploading twice a week more often than not. Be on the lookout for that, stay tuned for that. I'm working on it, guys. I see your comments about it. I promise I'm working on it. With that, let's get right into the episode. So today we're gonna be talking about Elisa Lamb. And this case is very, very sad. I know there was a lot of mystery surrounding it for a long time. After I looked into the case, I first discovered this case a long time ago, you know, right when it happened. And I definitely was like, oh, this is weird. This is odd. Let me know what you guys think by the end of this episode, and I will let you know what I think by the end of the episode. Elisa Lamb was born on April 30th, 1991 in Vancouver, Canada. Her parents' names were David and Yana Lamb, and she had one sister named Sarah. Elisa's parents actually immigrated from Hong Kong to Canada, where they decided to raise their family. Elisa was described as being very friendly, caring, and conscientious, so she always crossed her T's and dotted her I's. After graduating high school, she attended the University of British Columbia. In early 2013, Elisa was 21 years old and at this time she was still in college, but she was stressed out. I mean, school, college, very, very stressful. I can attest to this it makes you want to pull your hair out. And Elisa really just wanted a break from her studies. She wanted to just 
get away, go on a trip and be with herself. So she decided to take a solo trip to Los Angeles, California. Naturally, her parents were very nervous about her traveling alone because, you know, you're a young woman, you're by yourself. Sometimes people will look at you and think that you're vulnerable and want to take advantage of you. But Elisa really needed the alone time. She just wanted to get away from everybody. She felt like this was the best way to do it, was just to go by herself. And she promised to call her parents every single day in order to ease their concerns. So on January 26th, 2013, Elisa arrived in Los Angeles, California, and she checked into the Cecil Hotel, which was a couple blocks away from the infamous Skid Row, which is located in downtown Los Angeles. Now, Skid Row, if you haven't heard of it, it's known for its overwhelming homeless population. There's a lot of makeshift tents and camps that line the streets, and this is where people live. It's not the best area for a young woman to be staying by herself. I mean, as I said, the Cecil Hotel was only two blocks away, not to mention the fact that the Cecil Hotel itself has a pretty infamous reputation. So let's talk about the Cecil Hotel for a little bit. It opened in 1927, and when it first opened, it was meant to be a glamorous hotel for the rich and middle-class tourists. I mean, it was the roaring 20s, everybody was spending money. In case you guys didn't know this about me, I'm actually very into history, but the roaring 20s were an amazing time. Everybody was spending all kinds of money. People were hitting it big in the stock market. It was a really great time, but what goes up must come down. As the economy was ticking upward, it peaked, and the Great Depression hit in 1929 and the stock market just completely plummeted and everybody's money was gone. So because of this crash in the stock market and the economy, the Cecil Hotel was forced to rent out rooms for really cheap in order to stay open. I mean, they had to have some sort of business. So they had to lower their prices because people didn't have no money no more. And this drop in price attracted a different type of clientele than the hotel intended. So the hotel was meant for rich people, but because they dropped the prices, rich people who probably weren't as rich because of the Great Depression, they stayed in other places. Not to mention, as I said, the hotel was also very close to Skid Row. So this also attracted Skid Row residents whenever they came into a little bit of money, they would just go to the Cecil Hotel. Now, there have been at least 16 deaths at the Cecil Hotel, and at least eight of them came from falls or jumps, quote unquote, out of the hotel windows. Now, we don't know if the people fell or if they were pushed, but there were a lot of things that went on at the Cecil Hotel. It was said that murdered actress Elizabeth Short, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia, stayed at the Cecil Hotel just days before she was killed. I saw different reports that she stayed there and I also saw that she just got a drink from the bar there. Either way, it was reported that she was possibly there right before she was killed. This hotel was also home to serial killers Jack Unterweiger, I hope I'm saying that right, and Richard Ramirez during their killing sprees in the 80s and the 90s. Richard Ramirez was better known as the Night Stalker. There's actually a documentary about him on Netflix. I don't know if it's still up there, but I watched it. I watched it at night though, probably should not have done that. They were staying there because the Cecil Hotel rented out to residents and you could stay there for a long time or a short-term stay and pretty much live there during the time that they were committing their crimes, which is really, really creepy. Imagine the energy that that attracted. Because of this, the Cecil repelled tourists. They didn't wanna stay among people that they felt were dangerous. A lot of the people who stayed at the Cecil for long periods of time, like I said, they weren't involved in the best 
activities. There were also paranormal occurrences at the Cecil that left a lot of people very unsettled. So in 2011, the owner of the Cecil Hotel added a hostel inside of the hotel for younger tourists. And this hostel was called Stay on the Main. Now, if you don't know what a hostel is, it's a type of place where you can stay with multiple roommates at a time. And it's a much lower price because you're sharing a room with people that you may not know, may know. And this hostel was named Stay on the Main. And the Stay on the Main was given its own entrance, lobby, and sign to make guests more comfortable. Now the hostel portion of the hotel was on floors four through six, and Cecil hotel tenants occupied floors two and three, and then the remaining floors above floor six. I've never heard of anything like this before. It's very interesting that essentially put a hostel inside of the Cecil, and they sandwiched the hostel in between the other Cecil residents. I personally don't really know how I feel about that. I don't know if that would make me want to stay there. Even though the stay on the main had a different sign, different lobby, different look, different entrance, the entire building had to share the same elevators. Even if a hostel guest was staying on a different floor and going into a different entrance, they would still possibly come in contact with the hotel guests. So there's not a whole lot of separation. I can see they tried their best, they did. But ultimately, if you have to use the same elevators as people and you get off on a floor, what is stopping them from getting off right behind you? By 2011, the strange and mysterious mysterious deaths and violent crimes were still going on. Like this did not end. It continued to happen even though they added the hostel. Jumping back to January 26, 2013, when Elisa checked in, she decided to stay in a hostel and she had other roommates. She did not know these girls though. The first couple days that Elisa spent in LA, she toured popular destinations in California. She also went to the San Diego Zoo and posted pictures from her trip on social media. She was very active on Tumblr, which we're gonna get into later. Elisa was actually moved out of her room the first few days of her stay. She was forced to move to a single room by hotel staff. And this was because her roommates were complaining that she was acting very odd and they just weren't comfortable staying with her. She was doing things like leaving notes on the girl's beds, saying, go away, get out, go home. And she wouldn't let one of the guests in their room when she got locked out. And she was saying, what's the password? What's the password? And the girl was like, let me in the room. Like, this is not funny. I get sometimes people do that to be funny, but eventually they let you in. But Elisa was not letting her in. She was like, no, you don't have the password. This erratic behavior caused her to get moved to her own room on the fifth floor. The same day that Elisa was kicked out of this room, she went down to the hotel lobby and she threw her hands up at the hotel manager and said, I'm crazy, but so is LA. And then she just walked away. Elisa was set to check out of the stay on the main on January 31st. And she was supposed to call her parents and let them know that she had checked out. But they never heard from her. And this was not like Elisa. So I'm assuming she had been calling them every day up to this point and they were expecting a call from her again and they did not get it. They decided to report her missing. Hotel staff decided to call the Los Angeles Police Department, otherwise known as the LAPD, to investigate her disappearance. The LAPD went to Elisa's room and noticed that her belongings were still there. And these belongings included her laptop, her wallet, and her ID. Police also interviewed hotel staff to find out the last time Elisa had been seen and where she had been seen. And while reviewing surveillance footage from cameras in the hotel, police found a video from inside an elevator that I'm 
gonna detail for you here. Now I know you guys know what I'm talking about. This video was huge. This was huge. This made so many people really think that there was something very sinister going on. I'm going to post this on my TikTok as well, but let me break this down for you guys. So just hold on tight. The video showed Elisa in a red hoodie going inside the elevator and pressing all the buttons. Then she goes to the corner of the elevator waiting for the door to close, but it never does. So she cautiously walks towards the open elevator doors before peeking her head out. She starts to look back and forth, like from left to right very quickly before jumping back into the elevator. After this, Elisa stands against the wall next to the elevator buttons and looks as if she's hiding from somebody outside of the elevator. After this, she stands back at the open elevator doors before stepping back out into the hallway very, very slowly. Then she walks in this strange square-like pattern and stops right outside the elevator door. Then Elisa raises her arms, almost like she has her hands in her hair, and then she walks back into the elevator and presses all the buttons again. After doing this, she walks back outside the elevator and starts erratically moving her hands and arms in front of her, almost like she's just waving them. After this, she walks away from the elevator out of the frame of the camera and she is never seen again. Aside from all of her strange behavior, let's talk about this elevator. It never closed. She pressed every single button. She was standing on the side of it for like a good four or five seconds and it still didn't close. After Elisa left the elevator, it finally did close for the first time during this entire ordeal. And it closed after like 30 seconds. And in the video, the elevator opens back up again a few times, but I'm assuming that it was just going down to all of the floors that Elisa had pressed on. But the area outside of the elevator looked exactly the same each time it opened. So I don't know if every floor was identical or if it was just opening and closing on the same floor. Either way, weird. This video was definitely very strange for investigators to see. They really didn't know what to make of it. I can't imagine them finding that video for the first time and watching it. It was probably a very surreal moment. The LAPD, after reviewing the video, they decided to release it to the public on February 15th, 2013, because they wanted the public's help in identifying Elisa. Everybody went absolutely wild when this video came out. I mean, Elisa's strange behavior in it really captivated the internet and people were trying so hard to dissect this video because they wanted to understand why she was acting that way. I was 13 when this all happened and I don't remember it a whole lot. It was mostly talked about online, which is where I saw it and heard about it here and there. That was actually right around the time I got an iPhone for the first time and I was actually able to access the internet. So I went down a YouTube rabbit hole for hours and that's how I discovered this case. And it definitely made me pretty uneasy. The public was pretty suspicious of the video that was released. People don't miss anything. They noticed that the timestamps on the video weren't consistent, almost like it jumped from one to the next and they weren't simultaneous. They also saw that the video was slowed up at certain parts and police claimed that news outlets that the video was released to could have slowed the video up on their own. Like they didn't necessarily do it. Maybe the news outlet did, but this is just what they said. And they believed that news outlets were slowing up the video so you could see Elisa's face better. To this day, the LAPD are the sole owners of the raw cut of this video. That has never been released. 
As police were looking for Elisa and continuing their investigation at the Cecil Hotel, just hoping and waiting for somebody to recognize Elisa or just for them to find her, guests that were staying at the hotel started complaining to staff about the water in their room. The water pressure was low and had a murky color to it when they showered, washed their hands, and brushed their teeth. Some guests drank the water from the tap and reported that it tasted very strange. So after a number of complaints, hotel worker Santiago Lopez decided to check out the water tanks on the roof of the hotel to see what was going on. And he just assumed that maybe one of them was clogged. There were four water tanks on the roof and all of them were eight feet high and could hold up to a thousand gallons of water. Santiago goes up there to check it out and see what's going on. But he notices that the hatch of one of the water tanks was already open. He looked inside of the open hatch and could not believe what he saw. On February 19th, 2013, 19 days after Elisa Lam was last seen, her nude body was found floating face up in the water tank that Santiago Lopez looked inside of. Elisa was about 12 inches from the top of the tank and her clothes were found at the bottom. And these were the same clothes that she was wearing in the elevator video. They also found her watch and her hotel key card. Now, Santiago being a maintenance worker at the hotel, he knew that somebody was missing. And when he saw Elisa's body floating face up, he immediately recognized her and realized that this was the girl that they had been looking for. He runs back to the hotel lobby to inform hotel manager Amy Price that Elisa Lamb was floating in their water tank. And Amy called 911 to report that they had found Elisa's body. EMTs arrived and went straight to the roof to investigate. As they arrived, hotel guests were becoming pretty worried. I mean, they're seeing all these fire trucks and ambulances come and they don't know what's going on. And they found out pretty quickly that a body had been found in the water tank. As you can imagine, guests were absolutely horrified. They had been drinking, bathing, brushing their teeth and washing their hands out of a water supply that had been contaminated by a decomposing body. I can't think of anything more unsettling. I honestly don't think I would ever be the same if that had happened to me. I feel horrible for those guests. I mean, that's just horrible to have to experience. Because the water was contaminated, the hotel was deemed unsafe and was shut down. Guests were given new accommodations to stay in other hotels while they figured out the water situation. But EMTs, police, as well as the hotel staff were completely perplexed. Nobody could fathom how Elisa ended up inside of a water tank on the roof. Now, police had actually searched the roof with police dogs during their initial search for Elisa, but they never actually opened any of the water tanks. They just scanned the roof. And when they didn't see her, they just left. But isn't that the point of police dogs so they can pick up the scent of what you can't see? Of course, everybody is like, what the hell is going on? So the girl in this elevator video has now been found in a water tank on top of the hotel. People, of course, were waiting for the autopsy. The autopsy was completed on February 21st, 2013, but it wasn't released to the public yet. And this, once again, made people very suspicious. And they felt like police were hiding something. They wanted to know how Elisa passed away. I mean, the way she was found, people wanted to know how she got up there, what caused her to be up there. Everybody really wanted to know. People were very invested in this case. Now, the cause of death on the autopsy was initially deferred because they couldn't 
determine whether or not she had drowned, even though she was found in the water tank. There was no sign of drowning after examining her lungs, but that doesn't mean she didn't drown. But they couldn't determine if this was her actual cause of death or not. So they needed to run more tests and the medical examiner just needed more time before they could put out an official cause of death. Now, upon looking at Elisa's body, she had no signs of internal or external injuries. There were no signs of foul play. Investigators wondered if she was killed somewhere and her body was put in the tank or if she was killed by being in the tank, but there was no evidence to suggest this at all. A rape kit was also performed on Elisa, but there were no signs of sexual assault found. But this doesn't mean that she wasn't sexually assaulted. However, Elisa ended up in the water tank, it would have been hard for her to swim out. If the water is currently being used by hotel guests, which we now know it was, it'll suck the water down out of the tank, making it harder for Elisa to swim to the top above the surface. Investigators believed that Elisa tried to swim to the top as best she could, but the water kept sucking her down. And Elisa may have stripped off her clothing to make it easier to float or because she could have been experiencing hypothermia. People were also waiting for the toxicology report to find out if she was drunk or had been on drugs or if somebody had given her something. And when the toxicology report was completed, it revealed that there were no hard drugs or alcohol in Elisa's system. There were, however, prescription medications for bipolar disorder. Elisa had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and it was likely bipolar one disorder based on her medications. And this is said to be the most severe type of bipolar disorder. You can experience psychotic episodes that make it hard to separate fantasy from reality. You also experience extreme highs and lows in your moods. You can either be manic and have a lot of energy or very depressed. People with bipolar disorder have trouble sleeping, they experience racing thoughts, and they take medication in order to stabilize their moods so they can just function in everyday life. Elisa had been prescribed antidepressants, a mood stabilizer, and an atypical antipsychotic, and she had to take these medications every single day. These drugs were actually supposed to be in her system because, as I said, she was prescribed them for her disorder. But the levels of the medications in her body were abnormally low. She should have had more of these drugs in her system to help with the symptoms of her bipolar disorder. Now, when Elisa's room was initially searched, these prescription bottles and medications were found in them, but there was more in them than there should have been. So this means that Elisa wasn't taking her medicine as much as she should have been. Could this have contributed to her bizarre behavior in the elevator video? Elisa's sister later revealed to police that she had a history of not taking her medication as prescribed. And when she didn't, she would have a mental breakdown. According to Elisa's family, she would hallucinate, become very delusional in the way she spoke and acted. And she would always think that somebody was after her and she would get very scared and run and hide. Sometimes it would get so bad, she had to go to the hospital. Now, if you recall in the elevator video, does Elisa look like she's running or hiding from somebody. So once police learned that Elisa had been struggling with bipolar disorder and wasn't taking her medication as prescribed, they decided to dig into her past a little more to see what her state of mind was like right before she passed. And they came across her Tumblr page where she was very, very open about her mental struggles. Now, some of her posts read, according to some people, I have a chemical imbalance. Can I just inhabit someone else's brain? I have to pull myself together. I'm wasting my time compared to my fellow peers. 
Depression sucks, period. After reading these posts, investigators definitely started to think, okay, Elisa was really struggling and it was hard for her to cope with daily life. So imagine how much harder it would have been if she stopped taking her medication. The LAPD also decided to retrace Elisa's steps in LA just days before she died. And according to witnesses, Elisa went to a live audience production in Burbank, California, and she was behaving very erratically. She wrote a very long letter. She was just rambling on. It was almost like a stream of consciousness that really didn't make much sense and flow very smoothly. And she demanded that it be given to the host of the show. This made security pretty anxious and they decided to escort her from the premises because they didn't want anybody getting hurt. After discovering that Elisa hadn't been taking her medication, her odd behavior leading up to her being found starts to make a little bit more sense. Between the elevator video, her leaving strange notes on her roommate's beds and writing that letter to the host of the show. And don't forget when she walked into the lobby and was like, I'm crazy, but so is LA, definitely starts to make more sense of why she was acting that way. And investigators definitely believe that Elisa stopped taking her medication once she got to LA for whatever reason. On June 21st, 2013, four months after Elisa's death, the autopsy results were released to the public. Her cause of death was ruled as an accidental drowning. The public did not believe the coroner though. They were very, very suspicious and just skeptical. They felt like there was no way Elisa's death wasn't a homicide, given the fact that the lid of the tank was closed and people don't believe she could have closed the lid by herself. So I want to verify this for you guys. So when Santiago Lopez first got onto the roof and he found Elisa, Lisa, the hatch that was on top of the lid of the water tank was open, but the actual lid itself was closed. So everybody was like, how did she get it back up over herself? Somebody had to have done that. Well, Lisa didn't have to lift up the entire lid to get into the water tank. But at the time, the public didn't know that this was the case. I've combed over the autopsy many times. And in the section where the coroner has to state the manner of death, it looks like both could not be determined and accident were checked off. But the could not be determined is scratched out and has error written underneath of it. So the coroner has since come out and said that, you know, this was just a mistake. We checked it by accident and that just wasn't the case. But of course, people still think that there's some sort of cover up going on by the LAPD, but there's no reason ever given as to why they would want to cover this up. I personally don't know why they'd want to cover it up. I guess because they didn't find her the first time they went up to the roof. Let's get into some theories of what people at the time were thinking may have happened. Now, there was a stairwell that had a door at the end of it that led straight to the roof. This door needed a key in order to stop the alarm from going off when you opened the door. Only maintenance workers, security guards, and the owners of the hotel had the key. In the years following Elisa's death, people would visit the hotel and try to get to the roof, and they were able to do so with no key, and the alarm never went off. When they went up there, they would see beer bottles, cigarette butts, almost like it was a common hangout for people. Clearly it was too easy for residents to have access to this roof. So the hotel staff believed that Elisa climbed out of her fifth floor window and used the outdoor fire escape to climb to the roof. When they were told, well, maybe your alarm for the door to the roof just wasn't working and she was able to get up there without a key. But the hotel staff stands on the fact that the door alarm was working. 
searching and that police even checked it. They also posed the theory that somebody could have put Elisa up there, but it would have been really hard for someone to carry her body up to the roof or up the fire escape without hurting her. Because remember, she had no external injuries on her body. And imagine how hard it would have been to carry a body up a fire escape. I feel like you have to be really strong. And mind you, this fire escape's on the side of the building. You're going all the way up to the roof. It's a pretty scary, not that easy thing to do. Scaling the side of this building and it was pretty high up. I don't know if the hotel staff is just trying to evade responsibility because their facilities weren't working correctly or if they really believe that, but I just don't think that's plausible. Another theory was that Elisa was killed by a Cecil hotel guest named Pablo Vergara. Pablo was a musician and an actor who went by the name Morbid. And about a week after Elisa was killed, Pablo was sent a link by one of his friends that went to a TV station in Taiwan. And he was named as a potential suspect in the death of Elisa Lam by this Taiwanese TV station. He was called a Satan worshiper and said that his music was violent and he was speaking about killing people in his music. The TV reporter also said that Pablo had made posts online days before Elisa was found, suggesting that he had killed someone. Pablo was really confused because he had never even heard of the case or of Elisa. He was actually living in Mexico, so he didn't even know what was going on. But he actually did stay at the Cecil Hotel one time, but he stayed on February 4th and February 7th in 2012, which was a year before Elisa ever stayed there. She stayed in January of 2013. Pablo wasn't even in the country. He was actually in Mexico working on his album. A few days after this news was made public that Pablo was a potential suspect, the PGR, which is the FBI of Mexico, showed up at his house and decided to question him. But he was never charged. And once it was proven that he wasn't even in America when Elisa passed away, he was ruled out. Now there was proof that Pablo couldn't have killed Elisa, like there was no possible way, but people still believed that he did it. And this had a lot to do with the fact that he made satanic music and just the way he looked. He definitely looked pretty creepy, I'm not gonna lie. He said that that was all an act that wasn't who he really was. That was just his online persona. But Pablo continued to get death threats almost every day because people were constantly flagging his account. His YouTube, Facebook, and Gmail account were all taken down. Now this was very hard for him because he wasn't able to make a living. He posted his music videos on YouTube and he used Facebook to promote it as well as Gmail to contact his music people. When all these things were taken away from him, this really affected his life and he didn't even do anything. He just looked creepy. Pablo came out and said that he actually attempted suicide and spent some time in a psychiatric hospital because he just couldn't handle all the hate he was receiving. Not only that, but he actually stopped making music altogether. He said he never made another song again. He received so much hate online for his music and the way he looked, and that was being used to blame him for possibly killing Elisa. So he said that he couldn't even make music anymore. It just wasn't the same for him. Just wanna make a note that the LAPD has since come out and said that Pablo was not involved in the death of Elisa Lam whatsoever. 
Now, I told you guys at the beginning of this episode, I was going to tell you what I thought happened. What I think happened was that Elisa was having a psychotic episode of some sort because she wasn't taking her medication. And I think that's what we're seeing in the elevator video. Based on what her sister said, I think that she went in the water tank on the roof to hide from someone or whoever she thought that she was seeing. If you recall, her sister said that she was known to feel like people were out to get her, so she would hide. I don't think the alarm to the door of the roof was working like the hotel said it was, but that's just personally what I think. I don't think she climbed all the way up the escape ladder to get to the top. She could have, but I don't know why I just don't believe that. It seemed like it was pretty easy to get up to the roof. And I think Elisa went to the tank to hide. Once she got inside of the tank, she realized she couldn't get out because guests were using the water and it kept sucking it down, making it harder for her to swim to the top. And I think that caused her to accidentally drown. Like I said, that's personally what I think. I still stand by the fact that I don't think that alarm was working. I think that she was able to get up to that roof. I don't know why she would have climbed up the fire escape. And like I said, I've seen videos where people were like going to the roof. I don't know if somebody had unlocked it for them previously or not, but I saw videos of people going up to the roof and they got up there and no alarm went off. On September 19th, 2013, the Lamb family decided to file a wrongful death suit against the Cecil Hotel. They felt that the hotel was negligent by not having adequate barriers in place to stop Elisa from getting on the roof. The family also felt that the water tank hatch should have been locked to prevent people from going inside of them. The Cecil Hotel argued once again that their door alarm was working and that there's no way Elisa could have gotten up there through the door because it would have alerted them from the lobby and they would have gone up to see what was going on. And they stand by the fact that they think she got up there through the fire escape. They swear that was the only way. And the fire escape can't be blocked off from guests because they have to use them in case of an emergency. Now, the police can't prove how Elisa got up there, so they can't really say that it was the hotel's fault. No one can prove whether or not the alarm was working that day. So the wrongful death suit was ultimately dismissed and the judge ruled in favor of the Cecil Hotel. Again, I still don't think it was working, but police can't prove it. Now, we all look at this case as an internet mystery, people trying to dissect the video of the elevator and really trying to get into what may have happened, but let's not forget that a family lost their daughter and their sister. It's probably been so hard for them to imagine what Elisa's last moments were like. I mean, we all imagine it out of curiosity, of course, and you know, we wanna know what happened to her, but her family, they probably think about it constantly of how their daughter spent her last few moments. For them, it's not just an internet mystery. It's one of the worst things that's probably ever happened to them. So let's not forget that this is a real person, a real case, and a real family has been affected by this. I mean, her family knew she struggled, but they wanted her to be able to go on a solo trip and enjoy herself despite their concerns. And the fact that this is what happened, their worst fear came true when she did go by herself is just very sad. I'm sure they struggle living with the fact that she went or they feel like they let her go and put her in harm's way, knowing that she was struggling. But I mean, who would have thought that that would have happened? Mental health is a very serious issue. And I'm honestly glad that it's less stigmatized now. But back then at the time in 2013, it was pretty stigmatized, which is so crazy because that was what, 10 years ago? Times have really changed. Elisa probably had such a hard time opening up about her struggles with bipolar disorder in her everyday life which is why she posted about it online so much. It's truly a tragic story, and I hope that you all 
understand the seriousness of what can happen when mental health takes over. I feel like this is a cautionary tale to check on the people in your life and allow them to be vulnerable with you. Allow them to be open and honest and just give them an outlet to really listen so they can feel like they have someone to go to and they just feel like they're not alone. I will leave the number to the National Helpline for Mental Health in the episode description. This is just for general mental health crises as well as a link to their website. And I will also leave a hotline specifically for bipolar disorder and a website with information regarding bipolar disorder. And I made sure that I found reputable sites to put on here for you guys. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon.